Hey everybody, this is Murder Alphabet Soup. I'm Kira. I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy out there. It's been a minute, but uh, you know, with all the craziness going on, I've had to take care of some stuff, but I know you guys understand that. So without further delay, we are on episode K. And K is for KISS, more specifically the Kiss and Kill murder that happened in Odessa, Texas in 1961. The tragic story of Betty Williams, an intelligent and promising young woman who battled with her demons and just couldn't seem to win. She was murdered by her ex-boyfriend, Mac Herring, but for some people it isn't clear whether she or Mac or both is to blame. Some say Mac was manipulated and cut down in his prime by Betty. Others see Mac as a cold-blooded murderer that saw an easy way to get Betty out of his life. Betty Williams was a high school senior at Odessa High School in Odessa, Texas. She lived in a small house on a dirt road near the oil fields on the west side of town. She was one of four children. Her family wasn't the most well-off. Her dad worked as a carpenter, and her mother worked at a JCPenney. Her family, especially her father, were pretty strict Baptists, and her dad would often get preachy with her about being a good Christian daughter. But Betty wasn't really one to conform. She had a rebellious streak, especially for this time in the late 50s, early 60s. She listened to stand-up comedy records of Lenny Bruce, whose material often spoke out against racism and how hypocritical the middle class could be. Betty often didn't dress like the other girls of the time. I read an article from Texas Monthly that said she would go to the drive-thru sometimes in all black with white lipstick or jeans and a t-shirt with no bra. And while that sounds honestly like most of my wardrobe nowadays, it was a contrast against the typical matching sweater sets that most of the young women were wearing at the time. And she obviously wasn't afraid of being different and openly expressed her support for civil rights. She didn't believe in the segregation of their high schools, because in Odessa at the time, there was a separate school for people of color that was located across the railroad tracks. And because of these things, she was seen as a bit of a black sheep, and she knew this. Betty often wrote notes in study hall, one of them reading, quote, Most people do not understand me. There are people willing to be my friends, but mostly they are either too ignorant to understand why I'm like I am, and consequently offer my mind no challenge, or they haven't the wits to match mine, end quote. Betty had a passion for theater. She was talented at it and often landed roles in her school productions. Acting was something she wanted to pursue in college, and she really couldn't wait to get out of the small town of Odessa. Betty was definitely not considered one of the popular girls. Most classmates either barely remember her or they remember her as being a nobody. And, of course, as anyone who is different at that age, even if you don't necessarily want to be like the popular kids or have contrary beliefs to them, it still hurts when they don't acknowledge you or accept you. Shelton Williams, Betty's cousin and author of Washed in Blood, which covers life in Odessa at that age as well as Betty's murder, he said that, quote, Betty wanted to be totally unique while being completely accepted, end quote. There were many nights that Betty would sneak out and walk to the local drive-in diner, Tommy's. She would often talk to boys, and Betty was someone who wasn't afraid of her sexuality, which was something that was taboo at the time. 
You weren't supposed to be having sex, especially if it wasn't with your steady boyfriend. And because of this, Betty had a reputation which she didn't really mind too much. She liked being different. This brings us to Mac Herring. Mac was on the football team, an average player. He was described as handsome and tall with black hair. Mac was part of a middle-class family, his mother being a homemaker and his father a World War II veteran who owned an electrical contracting business. Unlike Betty, Mac was popular, but that didn't keep him from getting to know Betty. Mac being a sophomore and Betty being a junior, in the summer of 1960, the two began dating. Betty described him as more sensitive and romantic than the other boys and thought that maybe she was falling in love. But Mac didn't treat Betty like a girlfriend. He didn't take her to parties in his neighborhood where most of the other football players and popular girls lived. He didn't give her his letter jacket, and he didn't take her home to meet his parents. He kept their relationship very much on the down low. So in what's assumed to be an effort to make Mac jealous, she hooked up with one of Mac's best friends and fellow football player, Bill Rose. This didn't really sit well with Mac, and by the start of school next year, he was dating a new popular girl. Betty wrote in a note to Mac, quote, Mac, well, I guess you accomplished what you set out to do. You hurt me more than you'll ever know. When you handed me that note this morning, you virtually changed the course of my life. I don't know what I expected the note to say, but not that. I'll not waste time saying I didn't deserve it, because I guess I did. I've never been so hurt in my life, and I guess your note was the jolt I needed to get me back on the straight and narrow. I've done a lot of things, I know, that were bad and cheap, but I swear before God that I didn't mean them to be like that. I was just showing off. I know it's much too late with you, Mac, but I swear that another boy won't get the chance to say what you said to me. You've made me realize that instead of being smart and sophisticated like I thought, I was only being cheap and ugly and whorish. Forgive me for writing this last note, and thank you for reading it. I'll not trouble you again. And Mac, I haven't forgot the good times we had. I really have enjoyed knowing you, and I'm awfully sorry that it had to end this way. Best of luck with your steady girlfriend. I hope she's the best. Betty. P.S. When you think of me, try to think of the good times we had, and not of this. End quote. Betty also wrote in a note to a friend, quote, I've never been so humiliated and torn to pieces as I am now. I feel so lonely and deserted. I don't care what happens now or ever. This is pure hell. End quote. Betty was now in her senior year and was beginning to feel hopeless. The new theater director had appointed her as stage manager instead of a role in the upcoming play. Her father had found her diary in her room in which she had written about her experiences with boys and he was livid. To say the least, things were not going so well for Betty at home. Betty began telling friends that she was better off dead and even asked some of her theater classmates to kill her because she didn't have the nerve to end her own life. They all thought she had to be kidding, or at least just being dramatic, and took it as a joke. One day, as Mac was driving Betty and a friend, Howard, home, Betty asked Mac if he would kill her and also wrote out a note that basically detailed the fact that she had requested to die and would clear him of being accountable. Howard later said that this note was super melodramatic and seemed like a joke to him. But the next day, Betty pulled Mac aside and told him again that she wanted to die. Two days later, on March 22, 1961, Mary Williams, Betty's mother, 
didn't find Betty in her room that morning and confirmed with the school that she had never arrived. Mary called the police and reported Betty missing. At the school, Betty's friends and classmates were questioned about what they knew. Ike Nail, who was a junior, had driven Betty home from rehearsal the night before. He said that he had dropped Betty off at 10 o'clock and she had asked him to come back in a half an hour and meet in the alley behind her house. Half an hour later, Betty snuck out to meet Ike in his car. The two talked for a while and then Ike recalled seeing headlights coming towards them. The headlights were from Mac's Jeep. Ike remembered Betty saying, quote, Oh my God, I didn't think he'd come. She then got out and got into Mac's car. As she got out of Ike's car, she said to Ike, quote, I've got to call his bluff, even if he kills me, end quote. Weird. Of course, Ike thought that it was just a dramatic joke, so he didn't really try to stop her. When Odessa police youth officer Bobby McAlpin first questioned Mac, he said that he had dropped her off outside the front door of her parents' house at midnight, not waiting to see if she had gotten inside safely, and he hadn't seen her since. But there were some inconsistencies, and Officer McAlpin pressed Mac further. Why would she want to sneak back in through the front door? According to Ike, she was wearing pajama shorts and a duster shirt, which, especially at that time, you wouldn't leave a woman standing outside at night in. Mac was brought to the station for further questioning, and after about 45 minutes, he cracked. He told McAlpin that she had wanted to die, that she had asked him to do it, and everything he had done to fulfill her request. Mac then led officers to one of his father's hunting leases 26 miles outside of town. They arrived at the spot and continued down a dirt road to an area where Mac pointed out that led down a steep hill to a pond. In an area that was near the water, there was blood spatter on the ground. Mac told officers that he had shot Betty next to the pond with a 12-gauge shotgun that Betty had picked out. He had pointed the gun at Betty as she held it to her temple. Mac had then, wearing a miner's helmet with a light attached so that he could see in the night, weighed her body down with a rope and two lead weights and submerged it in the water. Upon the officer's request, he waded out into the water and retrieved her body, dragging her by the feet up to the shore. Officers remarked on how calm Mac was during this whole process, and that the entire time he showed very little emotion. Retired Highway Patrolman E.C. Locklear said, quote, it didn't move him when he pulled her body out of the water or when he said that he'd put a shotgun to her head. It was as cold-blooded and premeditated as it could be. What pushed him to do it? None of us knew. Later on, when I put him in the squad car to take him to jail, I said, Mac, didn't you expect to get caught? And he said, not this quick. He showed no emotion or regret or fear. It was like he was talking about shooting a dog, end quote. Of course, it didn't take reporters long to be on the scene and trying to get pictures and statements from Mac. He told reporters that she was cheerful on the drive out there and talking about how happy she was going to be when she was dead. Mac told reporters, quote, I said, give me a kiss to remember you by. She gave me a kiss and then said, thank you, Mac. I will always remember you for that. Then she said, now. I raised the gun barrel up and she took a hold of it with the back of her hand and held it up to her temple. And then I pulled the trigger. She was dead like that, snapping his fingers to emphasize. But Mac's peers didn't see him as a criminal. It was more like Mac had been burdened with this task he couldn't get out of. One classmate saying that they couldn't believe it, but if he had done it, there had to be a good reason. 
He was still invited to parties, visited by girls. People bragged about knowing him. Shelton Williams said that Betty was seen as a diabolical manipulator and that a customer of his father's was overheard saying that everyone knew that girl was no good and had tricked Mac into killing her. The note that Betty had left read, quote, March 20th, 1961. I want everyone to know that what I'm about to do in no way implicates anyone else. I say this to make sure that no blame falls on anyone other than myself. I have depressing problems that concern, for the most part, myself. I'm waging war within myself, a war to find the true me, and I fear that I am losing the battle. So rather than admit defeat, I'm going to beat a quick retreat into the no-man's land of death. As I have only the will and not the fortitude necessary, a friend of mine, seeing how great is my torment, has graciously consented to look after the details. His name is Mac Herring, and I pray that he will not have to suffer for what he is doing for my sake. I take upon myself all blame, and there it lies, on me alone. Betty Williams. End quote. Mac's trial took place February 20th, 1962. It seems pretty cut and dry. This was a murder that Mac had planned. He gathered all the supplies to carry it out, drove Betty nearly 30 miles out, and deliberately murdered her and admitted every bit of it. He showed no emotion, and while in custody, described his feelings for Betty as feeling like he would, quote, toward a cat lying in a muddy street in the rain, end quote. I mean, how premeditated can you get? But Mac's attorney, Warren Burnett, 34, thought he could win it. He was considered one of the best trial lawyers around. At 25, he was the youngest prosecutor in Texas. He was theatrical and charismatic in the courtroom, and no client of his had ever been sent to prison by the jury. Burnett fought for having the jury evaluate Mac's sanity at the time of the murder, because if it were found that he would be temporarily insane, he would go free and not have to stand trial for murder. These types of hearings were really only supposed to determine whether or not the defendant was fit to stand trial, but amazingly, the judge, Judge Olson, granted his request for a pre-trial hearing to determine Mac's sanity only at the time he pulled the trigger. 32-year-old District Attorney Dan Sullivan represented the state, and while he was an experienced attorney, most of his background was not in murder, and he was definitely overshadowed by Burnett's theatrical approach. His motion to have Mac evaluated by a psychiatrist of the state was denied by Judge Olson, since this was not a trial to determine Mac's current state of sanity because, according to the judge and Burnett, that just didn't matter. Nine character witnesses testified on Mac's behalf, many saying that he must have been temporarily insane. Other students confirmed that Betty had also asked them to kill her. Mac's father read the note that Betty had left, which put the blame on herself. And a town psychiatrist, Marvin Grice, also testified, saying that Mac had been dethroned of his reasoning at the time of the murder. He said that Mac was basically made to feel that it's what he should do for her and was deprived of the power of applying logic. Grice went on to say that the effects of this stress reaction were temporary and that he could be trusted to lead a normal life. They couldn't establish a motive for Mac, despite Sullivan calling Bill Rose, the best friend, to the stand to establish that Mac had been jealous of their encounter together. But Bill said that it didn't have an effect on Mac, really, and that they were still friends. Mac was called to the stand and said that he couldn't really explain it. When he did it, why he did it, he went on to say that it felt real at times, and at others he wondered if it was real, but that he knew in hindsight that what he had done was wrong. 
After 11 hours of deliberation, the jury determined that Mac was in fact temporarily insane at the time he pulled the trigger, and Mac was free. Sullivan appealed and was granted a new trial, but it proved to be more of the same, and the publicity that the case had attracted wasn't much help. Mac went on to attend Texas Tech, afterwards remaining in Odessa. He was married and divorced a couple of times, worked as a carpenter, a welder, and an electrician. He became your average working man, with an ordinary life, and on January 5, 2019, he died at the age of 75. In all of this attention on Mac, Betty seems to be overshadowed a lot of times in the case. She is made out to be a villain and a manipulator that ruined this promising young man's life without anyone thinking to ask why Mac didn't just say no. And even now, nearly 60 years later, students of the Odessa High School claim to hear creepy sounds in the auditorium, doors closing on their own, seeing her in the window while parked outside the school at midnight after flashing their lights or calling her name. And that is episode K. You know, Mac... As convincing as your argument is, you could have just said no. You should have just said no. But now we have this tragic story on our hands that I'm telling you about now. Of course, I feel I should say sometimes, especially at that age when you can't really imagine life past high school, but at any stage in life, really, it feels like things can't get better. But I promise you, they can. Hang in there, and if you need help, don't be afraid to ask for it. Let me know what you thought about this episode. Check out the Instagram for images relating to the episode as well as other content. Just like I did for this one, I'll be posting when new episodes are coming up at least a few days uh, ahead of time. But I, again, hope that everyone is staying safe out there. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.